does worship matter? Maybe that's a silly question to ask a group of people who've gathered here on a Sunday morning in order to worship. Your presence here this morning might reveal your answer, but we can't assume that. The people and the priests in Malachi's day were also carrying out the rituals of worship. So maybe a better, more delineating, more precise question is in order, one that gets us closer to the heart, might expose a diversity of opinion even among us today in this room, does how one chooses to worship matter. For while the worshipers in Malachi's time might have been marked present and accounted for, they were really only going through the motions, minimally, marginally fulfilling what they viewed as tiresome religious requirements. Does worship matter? Does how one chooses to worship matter? Our passage from Malachi 1 answers these questions. Well, Father, as we come to your word, we do so humbly, always in need, in need of your wisdom, in need of your truth, and seeking answers. Help us to know what you want to convey through your word. And help us to know what it means to please you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we think of the prophets, we often associate them with prediction. Predicting the future is historically one function that the Old Testament prophets performed. But more prevalent than prediction was the task of proclamation. God chose his prophets and employed them to proclaim his words. He used them to help his people see the true status of their relationship with him. Sometimes the prophets announced words of blessing and affirmation. But often their task was not a pleasant one. They had to say what no one really wanted to hear. They gave warnings and offered correction. And when describing the job of the Old Testament prophet, Dr. Richard Belcher has smartly coined the term covenant prosecutors. And as we move deeper into the book of Malachi, we will see him assuming this role of covenant prosecutor. His job is one of making God's case to the people who in this specific context have become mired in disobedience and spiritual apathy. And the oracle of Malachi calls for reform. Reform to the worshipers of his day, as well as reform to the worshipers in our day. The people are doomed if they do not recognize their waywardness, and if they do not amend their behavior. Now, if you have read ahead in the book at all, you've seen the writing of Malachi follows a fairly predictable pattern. God makes a declaration regarding an issue that he wants addressed. The people make a response to God, basically push back against what God says, and then God offers a rebuttal. He clarifies and provides evidence. That simple pattern of presentation lends itself to a corresponding pattern of interpretation. Interpretation is important in understanding prophecy. I think you'll agree one of the reasons 
that the books of prophecy are neglected in our devotional Bible reading is because we struggle to understand them. They can be quite intimidating. Pastor Jim Davis admits that the books of the Bible from Isaiah to Malachi aren't usually the first book someone sits down to read. He writes, the average Christian might read the New Testament multiple times before wading into Nahum. Why is that? Because most Christians think the prophets are confusing at best and irrelevant at worst. So to help us unravel the meaning of the prophets, to make them less confusing, to make them more relevant, more readily applicable, Pastor Davis offers a five-point method for reading and understanding biblical prophecy. You might want to take note of this, because it should help you, not just today or in the days to come, but throughout your reading of the Bible and the prophets. He says, first, look for how Israel transgressed the covenant. Second, hear the judgment for that transgression as it was proclaimed to the original audience. And third, pray that God would help us to see whether we're guilty of the same transgression. Fourth, look to Jesus. And in deep awe and gratitude, celebrate the removal of the wrath we deserve and his gift of unmerited grace. And finally, respond by making changes in your life that honor the status you've been given as participants in his new covenant. So first, look for how Israel or Judah transgressed the covenant. Second, what is the judgment? Third, are we maybe guilty of the same transgression. Fourth, how does Jesus fulfill the requirements? And finally, what change can we make as participants in Christ's new covenant? What changes do we need to make in our own lives? That approach right there is going to guide us through the remainder of this series as we tackle the different disputations that we come across in the book of Malachi. But the goal in using these five considerations isn't just so that you and I can get Malachi. It is also to equip us with a method for the future reading of the prophets. It should help you for the rest of your life. Our text this morning is Malachi chapter 1. begins in verse 6. The line of argument goes from the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to make reference to various verses as we make our way through the passage. Malachi chapter 1. If you don't know where Malachi is, find Matthew. Go left. You'll find it right there. Last book of the Old Testament. So if you can find the New Testament, you can find Malachi. And just so you know, up front, and to put you all at ease, because some of you are already looking at your watches, <laughs> of the five considerations that I propose for understanding prophecy, this morning we're going to cover one. Okay? We're going to cover the first, and I can see this now. We get 15 minutes into this, and we're like, we got four more of these? <laughs> so just one, and then we'll follow up, Lord willing, next week. What is the transgression? How did Israel or Judah break the covenant? In the declaration of God through Malachi that we're dealing with today, the priests of Judah, verse 6, the priests have despised God's name. The word translated despise there means to disesteem. It means to disdain, to regard with contempt. They have despised the name 
of God. And the name of God is one of the central themes in the book of Malachi. If you're one of those folks who likes to circle the words that you see showing up again and again, the name, the name, the name, Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, you can find it all through the book of Malachi. God is jealous for his name because his name is more than an appellation. It is more than a few words that he is known by. God's name in scripture is a revelation of his character. God's name is a description of who he is. In Exodus 34, we find Moses on Mount Sinai getting the second set of commandments. God descends in a cloud and he stands with Moses there and proclaims his name. The Bible says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. The name of the Lord is the character of the Lord and the presence of the Lord with his chosen ones. To despise the name of the Lord is to despise him. To reject it is to reject him. The right response to the name of the Lord is, as Moses demonstrated, humble worship for the name of the Lord. The Lord himself is great and greatly to be praised. And God is jealous for his name. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations. But the people and the priests of Judah have despised his great name. They don't believe they've done anything wrong. How? How, they ask. How have we despised your name? And God answers, by offering polluted food upon my offer, altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. They probably didn't say that out loud. They didn't create a new rule that the Lord's table might be despised. But by their actions, that is what they're saying. This table can now be despised. You see, the priests were being disobedient by offering unacceptable sacrifices. Specifically, they're transgressing the covenant of God by violating the clear commands of Scripture, the law that was laid down for them and can be found in Leviticus chapter 22. In Leviticus 22, verses 17 to 22, we read this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering, for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, it is to be accepted for you. If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable to you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace, offering to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There will be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. Well, that's fairly straightforward. One of the jobs of the priests in that day was to inspect the offering. 
the animals that were brought to be sacrificed had to pass muster. They had to be up to standard. God had set the standard. A perfect sacrifice was necessary to atone for the imperfect people that are offering it. The lambs and the goats had to be without defect or they're not allowed. And when the priests saw that the people were bringing lame, blind, diseased, even stolen, it seems, animals to present to God, they should have turned those substandard offerings away. They should have sent them packing, but they did not. The text doesn't indicate for us whether it was the priests who encouraged this sort of behavior, this kind of compromise, or if the people had chosen to be disobedient and the priests were just simply too weak to stop them. It could have been that they wanted to do the wrong thing and the priests, for their fear of man, like Adam in the Garden of Eden or Aaron in the wilderness, while Moses with God allowed what was wrong. Either way, and regardless of who initiated the disobedience, it is clear that God holds the leaders accountable for the mess that temple worship had become. The priests were the ones who were supposed to inspect and approve the offerings, but they're enabling and they're perpetuating this polluted worship. Their willingness to compromise showed disregard for God's direction. The priests had taken it upon themselves to change God's standards. You catch that? The priests had taken it upon themselves to change God's standards. That is a practice, beloved, that some clergy continue to this day. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament warn us about this practice. When the priests did that, they encouraged their fellow worshipers to be okay with less than what God required. This willful disobedience God translates immediately, he sees it this way, as dishonoring. God deserves honor. God demands honor, especially from those whom he loves and those whom he has chosen. But how do you honor God? How does one honor God? If that is your goal today, you want to live in a way that honors God, how do you do it? You see, it is one thing to profess a love for God. Anybody can do that. But how is that love manifest? Jesus tells us, if you love me, what, how, can you fill that in? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Yes, you can fill that in. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. One honors God. One keeps covenant with God through obedience. This is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, where Moses tells Israel, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But then you go to verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and will overtake you. Keeping covenant is obeying the voice of the Lord by following his commands, doing what he says to do. Breaking covenant is disobeying the voice of the Lord by not following his commands. 
doing what he says not to do. God is honored when we follow his ways. God is dishonored when we don't. Simple enough. But the priests don't see their fault. They really believe that how they're worshiping is just fine. So God appeals to social convention. He hopes to illuminate their transgression with something they would understand immediately. Sons honor their fathers. And servants honor their masters. And scripture teaches us, right, that Israel is God's son. God is Israel's father. Israel is God's servant. God is Israel's master. This is what we see in society, God says. Sons honor their fathers and servants honor their masters. Where then is my honor? I am your father. I am your master. Yet you dishonor me with these unacceptable offerings. The priests are doing something, God points out, that they wouldn't do to a politician. They're doing something to God that they wouldn't do to a politician. They're treating their great king in a way they wouldn't even treat their own governor. Would you bring your governor this junk? Would he be happy with that? Would you even try? God is offended. God is offended by the actions of the people and the priests. Why? He's offended because worship matters to him. Not only does worship matter, but how one approaches worship, how one approaches God matters. He is particular, and rightly so, when it comes to the worship that he will accept and the worship that he won't. This, beloved, is why we Christians should make every effort to strive to give God the worship he desires. To search his word and find those things which please him and to worship him in that way. We should make every effort to strive to give God what God wants, not just simply or be satisfied with what we want to give him. Not saying that sometimes what we want to give him isn't great and exactly what he wants, but sometimes what we want to give him isn't what he wants. Do you agree with that? This is, this is, this is one reason why we do a service re review as part of our elders' meeting. You wouldn't be privy to that necessarily, but we evaluate our worship. We evaluate our worship service to ensure that what we do and how we do it week in and week out is honoring the Lord, pleasing to God. That is the scorecard, isn't it, at the end of the Lord's Day for our worship? Isn't that the scorecard? Is God pleased? Okay, forget about gathering around the table and, and carving up the service, weighing in on what you personally like and what you personally don't like. Did, does the worship exalt God? Is it conducted in the ways that he prescribes in his word? You see, in Malachi's day, the worship habits of the people were shaped by their desires and not the Lord's. They were giving him what they wanted to give him, but not what he told them he wanted. They were not bringing their best. In fact, they were bringing what was broken. They were bringing what they didn't want. They were not bringing costly sacrifices. In some cases, they're offering to God what they had taken, what they had stolen. It didn't cost them a thing. That would be like 
stealing from somebody and bringing the money in and putting it in a plate and calling it your tithe. That's what's happening. And this worship is offensive to the Lord. So, all right, all right, we get it. He's offended. Is he being nitpicky? Is our God, like, just hypersensitive? In a bad mood? No. So why is he so angry? Why is he so upset? Why is this so unacceptable to him? If we're going to understand why these half-rate offerings are such an affront to God, it's going to help us to consider, we have to go back to consider the purpose of the sacrificial system. See, God designed and God set in motion um, this system of offerings. He prescribed this system of offerings for Israel so it would consistently teach and remind them of important truths. We need to be reminded of important truths, don't we? We are prone to forget. We are prone to get distracted. So some of these important truths that God wanted to keep in front of his people with this system of sacrifices include this. Number one, that the context of life is God. Well, gee, doesn't everybody know that? No. Doesn't everybody keep that in mind? No, they do not. We all would do well to understand that the context of life is God. He made us. We were made by him for him. We live in his presence every moment. He is the creator. We are the creation. We are the creatures. We shouldn't get confused. In fact, in Romans 1, when God sits, lets the people over, gives them over to their own sin, it's because they have confused these things. So, so we live in the, con life is in the context of God. Let's just start there and not forget there is a God. He made us and we are accountable to him. We live in his presence. We're always in his presence. Secondly, he is a holy God. God wants us to never forget that he is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is just. And he is worthy of the very best that any of us can offer to him at any time. That is who he is. And thirdly, God would want us to think about sin. That is when we rebel against him. When we choose to be disobedient. When we fall short of what is best in his eyes. When we miss the mark that he sets for us. That is sin. And sin is serious. It is a serious offense against God. All sin no matter who else it is against at the time, whether it's against you or somebody else, all sin, understand this, friend, I think you do, is always a sin against God. Well, J David said that right in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. So all sin is serious and all sin is against God and it creates a debt to God that must be paid for. And the consequence of sin is what? It is death. That is what our sin deserves. I mean, I'm giving you the short version of the sacrificial system and tying in a little bit of Romans here as well. The wages of sin is death. That's what our sin deserves, okay? Our death and eternal separation from God. But get this, God is merciful. 
and he allows a substitute to pay the price for his people's sins. The shedding of an animal's blood was a graphic display of the consequences of sin. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no remission of sin. Sin deserves death. If it's not going to be the death of the sinner, then it has to be a substitute. So by now, you should be gaining a sense of why maintaining the integrity of the sacrificial system is such an issue for the Lord. We're going to dive deeper into that next week as we tackle the fourth of the five considerations. How is the requirement satisfied or fulfilled in Jesus? But for today, let me leave off with this thought, that the Old Testament sacrifices which God ordained for Israel are a foreshadowing of a greater substitutionary sacrifice that will come to end all sacrifices once and for all. In other words, they prefigure what Jesus is going to do on the cross when he lays down his life as a propitiation, as an atonement for the sins of the world. So let me ask you, beloved, what will it take to procure the salvation of the world? What will it take to procure the salvation of the world? And you know the answer, the shed blood of the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. Nothing else would do to compromise the requirements of temple worship to lower the standard of, of acceptable offerings, to act like any old sacrifice will do, it could only serve to diminish, to distort, and in some ways make unrecognizable God's heart and his merciful provision for forgiveness and the cleansing from sin, the culmination of all sacrifices in Jesus and the glorious end of the sacrificial system by the shed blood of the perfect one who dies once and for all. Once and for all. And that brings us to this table. It's interesting, I think, in our text that Malachi, God through Malachi, talks about polluting the Lord's table in the context of acceptable worship. And what he meant there is the Lord's altar, where the sacrifices are being made. And yet we have our table. Is it possible to pollute this? Is it possible to approach this in a way that God would not be honored? And some of you are nodding because you've read 1 Corinthians, and you know that God actually does tell us how to approach this so that it won't be defiled, so that we won't receive condemnation for participating wrongly, so that we will do this in a way that honors him. One of the things the Bible says there in 1 Corinthians is that we should not take this in an unworthy manner. We should be examining ourselves and that we should not take it in an unworthy manner. Now, I'm not going to preach another sermon. We're getting ready 
to, to enjoy the Lord's Supper and celebrate that together. But let me just throw this out here. One way to do this in an unworthy manner is to do it without the presence of faith. You see, the priests that were offering those lame, blind animals didn't really have any faith that anything was happening or that it even mattered. And so they didn't have faith as they made their offerings to God. And that was detestable to him. One thing that we must do as we come to this table is have faith. Okay, what are we having faith in? Let me say what we're not having faith in. We're not having faith in that we've been good enough to get into heaven on our own. Or that we're even worthy in some way to participate or partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. A lot of people have read the 1 Corinthians passage and they get afraid because it says don't take this in an unworthy manner and we know in our heart of hearts I'm unworthy I can never take this what kind of faith do you need you need this faith you are unworthy you are unworthy in and of yourself but Jesus Christ has made you worthy that's what he did when he said take and eat Take and drink. Take me. I will take your unrighteousness and you will have my righteousness. In that great exchange, that makes you worthy to come to this table. That makes you worthy to eat this bread and drink this cup. This is for believers. Have faith in what Jesus has done for you. Although your sins be as scarlet, in Christ they are white as snow. That's what we celebrate when we come to this table.